namo tassa bhagavato harahato samhasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samhasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samhasambuddhassa buddhang namang sanghang namasani Okay, so let's have a look. Please say something about the devas. Okay, let's see if I can think of anything that comes to mind about the devas. It's funny, it's interesting. I was actually thinking about devas today. <laughs> um, I spent a, uh, a winter retreat at Arrow River a couple of years ago with Ajahn Punadamo. And at the time, he was writing his book, uh, Buddhist Cosmology. And uh, I was reading a draft of the book, trying to help him a little bit, proofreading it. And uh, I ended up kind of getting into this one story about the devas. So this Deva story came to mind, and I think maybe I'll share it with you. So it's how the, how the, I think it's how the Tawatingsa Devas became the Tawatingsa Devas. And so the story goes, there was this virtuous young man from a kind of an ordinary village someplace in India. And he and his friends um, spontaneously notice the connection between wholesome action and wholesome outcomes. So when they did something generous, they felt good. And when they did something, uh, you know, they played pranks on somebody, did something kind of unkind, it didn't feel good. And so they started kind of challenging each other to do, to find good things to do. And so they, uh, they built a, uh, their village was kind of uh, kind of poor, didn't have a whole lot of resources, and they had a muddy track, and so they, they basically uh, topped the road. They built a road, maybe kind of by hand, using cobblestones, to connect their village to the next village down, down the track. And this, this act brought the village prosperity, because people could now travel easily to the village, more commerce came through, and they felt really good about it. And so then they, they built a... Uh, like a, a rest house for travelers, and the village became famous as a place for hospitality, and so more prosperity was coming. And, and um, they, whatever, this, this young man was like the leader of this group, and they kept kind of coming up with these generosity projects. Um, and there's a lot more detail than this, but fundamentally at the end of their lives, um, when they passed away, they appeared spontaneously at the top of this mountain, uh, Mount Sinaru. Mount Sinaru is this really, really tall mountain, sort of in the center of the universe, so to speak, with a flat top. And on the top is where the Tawatings and Davis live. So they spontaneously appear in this place in the company of the Tawatings and Davis. And the Tawatings and Davis have become corrupt, right? So 
on earth, these, this group, this uh, young fellow and his band of followers were practicing like uh, moral restraint, not taking intoxicants, and conducting acts of generosity by body, speech, and mind, practicing loving kindness, all kinds of really great stuff. The stuff that gets you born in heaven. Right? They were doing it all. So here they are, they're born in heaven, and the, and the devas that are there, well, they're, they're kind of sensually indulgent, you know, because you can pretty much have anything you want in heaven. And so these devas immediately invite them to come to a party. And so they, they, they accept, but the leader says, look, let's, let's stick to our, to our moral virtues. Let's not, let's not get drunk. And so the, uh, the devas that are there, they're, they're drinking and they're singing, and eventually they all fall into a drunken stupor pass out. And the, um, the newly arrived, um, uh, no, they're devas too, the newly arrived devas. Um, and and the, the ones that have all got, got drunk and fall asleep, they were all the senior devas, they were the leaders of the, of the current group. And it occurred to them that they could just throw them the edge, over the edge of the... <laughs> Uh, top of this gigantic mountain that they're on top of, which seems maybe a little out of character, but <laughs> but it's very it's amusing. It's an Indian story, so it's like this. So they so the uh, they they seize the the, uh, the the passed out Davis by the heel, swing them around their heads, and throw them over the edge of the tower things that uh, the. The, the top of Mount Sinaru, and these uh, these devas basically fall from the Tawatinsa heaven onto the slopes of Mount Sinaru, and there they take the form of the next group down, which is called the Asuras. And from that moment on, the Asuras and the devas are always uh, kind of at, at battle heads with each other. So the Asuras will attack the devas, and sometimes the devas will attack, counterattack the asuras, and so there's all these stories about the the asuras and the devas, kind of struggling for power and supremacy. Then of course the asuras want revenge, and they want they want to have their their uh, place back. <clears throat> but of course the only way to actually get the place back is to conduct oneself with great moral restraint and acts of generosity. But these asuras are motivated by by their uh, uh, frustration and their uh, unhappiness about having been cast out. And so they're, they're having a, the Asuras, because they're still devas, they've only kind of fallen one notch down. They're, um, maybe they're not the nicest devas in the world, <laughs> but they're, uh, they still have you know, celestially long lifespans, and they still have a certain amount of celestial glory, um, beauty, and in fact, uh, uh, what's his name? Who's the who's the top guy in the Tower Tings of Heaven? What's his name? Sakya. Saleka. Saleka. I think. What's that again? Saleka. So Saleka um, actually ends up marrying the daughter of the, the Assyrian king. Um, uh, how does that work? Anyways, there's a whole story about how he ends up marrying the daughter. The Asuras are really upset about it. <laughs> they, they, they chase, they give chase to Seleka as he's taking her back to the Tawatings of Heaven, and they're, they're barred at the gate, or something like this happens. Anyway, so there's all these kinds of stories about the devas. I was thinking about it. 
And there's this great story. The Buddha uses the this um, kind of background understanding of devas to tell stories about, he makes stories up about the devas, just like we might make up stories about, I don't know, uh, Paul Bunyan or Harry Potter, right? It's a fictional characters. We can do anything we want. So um, he tells a story about the this one time the Asuras decided to attack the devas and try to see if they can take over Tawatingza again. And the devas enter into battle with the Asuras and the devas win. And they take the Asuran king, whose name also escapes me, unfortunately. They take the Asuran king prisoner. Uh, it's like His name is like Pajati or something like this. Uh, I wish I could remember these names. Anyways, so they take the Asuran king prisoner and they bind him in what's called the, uh, the, the five-point binding. So his hands are tied, his feet are tied, and his neck is tied. So he's kind of like tied like this. But it's, it's a particular deva charm of binding. It's not like a rope. It's like he's, he's bound by a, a kind of a, a, a mental kind of binding. And the Buddha says that the, the devas, the Tawatinks of Deva king, worked a very magical kind of binding on the Asuran king. This binding was such that whenever the Asuran king had the thought, you know, the, the, the Tawatinks of Devas are righteous and the Asurans really shouldn't have attacked them, that was unrighteous of us. Then he's free to go about inside Tawating's heaven. Everybody will welcome him. He'll be free to do whatever he likes. And whenever he has the thought, the Asurans are righteous and the, the Tawating's devas are unrighteous, he's bound by this five-point binding. So his binding is controlled by his thinking. Whatever he thinks determines whether or not he's free to go or whether he's bound up. And uh, the Buddha was using this, of course, to illustrate. He, he was pointing out that he says, given this, um, even as the Talatings uh, of Deva's kings, the Salakas king binding onto the Asuran king, this five-point binding is very subtle. You know, it's not like a concrete thing, but it's very subtle, driven by the mind. Even so, what binds worldlings to the round of samsara is even more subtle than that, but of the same nature. Good stuff, huh? So, we're all like the Asuran king. We're in Tawatingsa heaven. Right? All we have to do is get our thinking straightened out and we can enjoy the place. Eleanor has a question. Yes, please. When the Buddha taught, in the suttas, when the Buddha taught um, the monks uh, the metta chant as a, as a way of protecting them, mm -hmm. was it the devas who were bothering the monks in the forest monastery, or were they other types of beings? Well, there's, there's uh, multiple levels of these celestial beings in the cosmology, and it was understood that the, the deva, it was celestial beings. They were called devas, sort of like the utilitarian you know, kind of cover all. Um, these were understood to be um, Bhuma devas, so earthbound devas. 
So they're they're pretty good Davis, but they you know they're kind of they have they have a lot in common with humans. They get they get annoyed, they get they get afraid, they get greedy. Um, so uh, they can do things like uh, dislike somebody and want to kick them out, which is what happened in this case. Okay, the story about the Davis and the so there the um, uh, there was a there was a range retreat. We <laughs> tell the story about the Davis. Story time for Davis. See, we actually all kind of like Davis, don't we? Um, the story time. The story here is um, is the, the the origin story of the Meta Sutta, um, or the, the 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 kind of this principle of Meta as a way of subduing hostility. So the, uh, and you know, these stories are kind of, kind of helpful, or, or um, uh, the allegorical nature of them allows a, a fairly broad range of, of interpretation, and some of it's very, very applicable to our situation. So here's the story. The, uh, uh, there was a rains retreat in which um, a, a number of monks came to the Buddha and said, um, Venerable Sir, please give us a meditation topic. We'll go off to the forest and use your meditation topic and uh, pursue, diligently <coughs> pursue enlightenment. So the Buddha gives them uh, a topic like follow the breath or something and sends them off to a particular place. He says, I want you to go, I want you to go to this village and in the forest just outside this village, you know, set up camp and spend the range retreat there. So they all salute the Buddha and head off to this place. And the place in the forest where they're going happens to be occupied by a bunch of earthbound devas who are all living in the trees of the forest. So earthbound devas like living in trees. And you know, like any nice neighborhood, they don't like ruffians coming around and knocking over the trash cans and creating a havoc. So they see these, these homeless ascetics coming and they kind of take a dislike to them. They really don't like people coming into their terrain, into their territory. <clears throat> they're kind of afraid they're going to be there forever. Uh, they don't, they don't, it doesn't occur to them that they're just sort of here a little, for a little while and they don't want to share their space with them. So they, they try to scare them away by creating uh, frightening sights, you know, appearing as maybe ghosts or demons to them, making horrible sounds, making horrible odors, and uh, 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 waking them up in the middle of the night with horrible visions. So after a, a little while of this, uh, the bhikkhus do become quite frightened, and they go back to the Buddha and say, you know, we can't, like, we can't do the range retreat in that forest because it's, it's haunted, and it's, the, the spirits are really hate us. Yeah. And so the Buddha says, well, I want you to go back there and give it another go, but I'll give you a special spell of protection. So use this to, to uh, help see if this does anything for your situation. So he gives them these meta phrases, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be free from suffering. And uh, additional <coughs> phrases in that vein, but so he kind of, this is the, the notion of meta as simply a cultivating a mental kindly regard for other beings, even in the midst of difficulty. Right? That's just a kind of a high bar, right? But the bhikkhus are very diligent. They are certainly 
quite willing to do or try to do what, what the Buddha asked them to, so they go back to the forest. And the spirits aren't happy to see them, but um, you know they, they move back into their huts and they uh, they start using these phrases. They start reciting the phrases aloud, and they also start reciting them in their minds. And the devas can actually sense the change in the relationship. Like the the monks aren't uh, afraid of them, and they're not hostile towards them. They're not sort of hostile back. And they're able to sort of read the minds of the monks. They can sort of see what they're thinking of. And so they, they become pacified by these metaphrases. And after a while, they start to kind of like the fact that there's these meditating monks thinking metaphrases at them all the time. And by the end of the range retreat, they're really attached to the monks. They don't want them to leave. <laughs> and so they're kind of like making really nice weather, and they're creating all kinds of great conditions. And, and so then when the monks, it's time for the range retreat to be over, they're, they're actually quite sad to see the monks go. So this is the, the power of metta, and this is another... Um, you could think of the devas as our own minds, right? And a lot of these teachings, uh, maybe the devas, are, you could sort of think of them as like a psychological process within your own mind. So if your own mind is generating, you're trying to meditate, your mind is generating all kinds of frightening thoughts, frightening sounds, frightening visions, uh, maybe try sending metta phrases like these monks did to the uh, the uh, earthbound devas in the story and see if the those forces are, aren't uh, modulated, pacified and maybe even turned around by that, by the force of this powerful uh, almost curative quality of cultivating these wholesome phrases in mind may all beings be happy so there's another deva story um The story about Rahula. Okay, here's another one. So Rahula, it's funny, I was thinking about Rahula just the other day. <laughs> it occurred to me that the Rahula is such a, uh, such a terrible name. You know, like Rahula means fetter. And so it's like naming your son Handcuff. <laughs> so so um, yeah, the, the story goes that the Buddha, you know, by the time his son was uh, about to be born, he'd already made, gotten pretty clear in his head that there's nothing in lay life that's worth pursuing because it's all subject to aging and death. None of it leads to the deathless. And so he'd become fairly disenchanted with what lay life had to offer. And yet when his son is born, of course, he feels the pangs of parental pride and attachment. And so he gave him the name Fetter, <laughs> Rahula. But even so, um, to, so here's something that to, to maybe as an aside to bear in mind about the culture at the time, right? So in the modern era, hearing about the Buddha deciding to up and leave his wife and child, it sounds like, you know, a case of like familial abandonment and you know, male irresponsibility and that sort of thing. So we're, we can kind of map our current, our current culture onto that culture and perhaps possibly misunderstand it. It's important to bear in mind that the clan that he lived in, being a warrior clan, all the males were trained in warfare. And the entire clan looked after the women and children when the men were at war. And at any time, any man 
could die in battle. And so whenever they went off to battle, it was assumed that some of them wouldn't come back. So men going off and not coming back was normal, accepted, routine part of clan life at the time. So the, the children were reckoned to belong to the clan, not to the mommy and daddy. Right? So as we live in a much different culture where parents kind of own their children. This was a, a different time and a different place. So the Buddha deciding that he needed to go off and pursue enlightenment, well, a little unusual. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't uh, uh, unheard of, but you know, someone of his status doing that was kind of very unusual. Um, but for sure, the sense that he's, he's, like he's somehow mistreating somebody or abandoning somebody, um, that's, that doesn't really come across at all in the, in the way this is conveyed, even by his parents when they, when they talk. They, they, they feel sad that he left, they want him to come back, um, but they don't think that he's somehow uh, irresponsible in doing this. So the Buddha decides that he needs to, to, to leave, and, and he tells his parents about it. He says, I'm going to become an ascetic. And they beg him not to. He's just with, with you know, tearful eyes um, asking me not to. Even so, I, you know, I went forth, shaved off my hair and my beard. So the story about him having to escape from the castle you know, in the dark of night because his father was keeping him trapped, that all got made up later. So just, just so you know, um, that's a, it's a good story and it, it's, it has some useful implications. But they, uh, what the Buddha says about his own decision to depart is a little more straightforward. So he leaves his, his wife, and uh, you know, his, I think his wife is actually one of his second cousins or something like that. This is kind of, again, normal for the clan. Um, and he leaves his child, Rahula. And of course, the clan, he knows the clan's going to take very good care of them. He's the grandson of the king, after all, right? Rahula. So <clears throat> he goes off and he strives. And then um, when he comes back, his son is seven years old, I think. Right? So he's gone for six years striving as an ascetic. He becomes enlightened. He starts teaching his initial disciples. Some of them become enlightened. He at a certain point, he decides it's time to go visit my parents, my hometown. And when he, when he shows up there, his wife sees him coming and says, uh, to little Rahula, here comes your father. Go and ask him for your inheritance, right? And you can sort of read that into that, like, you know, he's he's given everything up. He's just kind of wandering ascetic. He doesn't have anything, and I'm really gonna like put the knife in by <laughs> getting his little son to run up to him and say, please give me my inheritance. And so the Buddha, when Rahula comes up to the Buddha, he says, okay, follow me. <laughs> so he takes Rahula back into the forest and ordains him as a seminara. So Rahula becomes one of the one of the youngest uh, uh, bhikkhus ever, right? seven years old, son of the Buddha. And uh, you know there weren't there weren't like standards and norms about age limits at that time. Later on, the Buddha's father came to him and said. You know, when you left, that was really hard. And then Ananda left to become your attendant. You know, he was part of the clan too. That was really hard. But then you came and you took Rahula. You know, that's just... Uh, 
please, sir, would you make a rule that no one, no one that young can go forth? You know, that's that's too hard for the parents. Um, so he he the Buddha relented and he says like no one younger than the age of 20 can ordain as a bhikkhu, and uh, to ordain as a samanera as a as a novice, which is uh, just kind of a, a, a much easier, uh, much less rigorous kind of ordination. <coughs> um, the accepted age right now is something like 12. Right? Uh, I think the canonical age was, has to be big enough to be able to defend himself and his own food against crows, which <laughs> could actually be younger than that. Anyway, so Rahula was right there at the cutting edge of, of really, really young monks. There was, a, there was another, there's a whole group of stories in the Vinaya about some monks that were ordained quite young, and they get in trouble for things like swimming and running and tickling, and, you know, uh, that's also part of the motivation not to ordain really young children. So there's a bunch of rules about monks not being able to, not being allowed to, to like, swim for fun. Not being allowed to tickle each other <laughs> because of these little kids that were ordained way back then. So Rahula, uh, being the being the the son of the Buddha, uh, there's a number of suttas in which he appears. Right. So uh, uh, probably the most famous one is the Buddha's instruction to Rahula, in which it's it's believed that the Rahula, as you know, as young children will do, um, was confronted with something or other and told a lie in order to get out of it. And so the Buddha comes to him at his little dwelling and uh, he says, you know, Rahula, uh, he takes up a, a dipper of water. He sees this, you see, see this dipper of water? And Rahula says, yeah, yes. And he turns it upside down and he pours the water on it. He sees how the water just goes completely out of it? And he says, yes. He says, you see how now the dipper is empty? doesn't have any water left in it? And Rahula goes, yeah. He says, in the same way, a person who tells a deliberate lie throws away their goodness. Just like that. Right? And so you should train yourself, Rahula. You know, and uh, I, I, uh, I undertake the precept to refrain from false and harmful speech. And so there's there's a couple of other passages like this where he's giving Rahula this really basic, very straightforward training in morality. And when Rahula's 18, he gives him instruction on um, Satipatthana. And then shortly after that, Rahula becomes an arahant. And so uh, that's his inheritance. <laughs> I never really heard what happened to, to his wife after that. But, so there we go. I was going to check and see if there was any other questions. I had a couple. Um, I, I rated the question box earlier today, so that's part of the reason it was empty. And we have one from last night. What is the deathless? Please explain clearly. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. it doesn't say exactly that. <laughs> Let's see, i got to find my glasses. Can you please explain this clearly? Thank you. Okay, that's much nicer. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, 
Um, of course, in the suttas, the Buddha uses a number of uh, synonyms to indicate this goal of the teaching, which uh, the most common term used is nibbana, uh, which means cooling or going out. Um, he also used nipapancha, which means the end of papancha, or non-papancha, non-proliferation, non-conceptual entanglement. Um, and he used terms like the wonderful, um, the highest happiness, um, the unconditioned. So human beings, as, as human beings, we're, we're, our minds are constantly preoccupied with the conditioned world, which is always arising and passing away. Everything that arises depends on causes and conditions. And that's what we're constantly grappling with, constantly engaged with. And so it's that which is conditioned is not enlightenment. If it's conditioned, you can pretty, you should be pretty sure that's not it. Because it's not conditioned, this, this thing, this nibbana, this state, this experience, this understanding is not conditioned. It doesn't arise and pass away. And because it doesn't arise and pass away, it doesn't age, it doesn't get sick, and it doesn't die. It's not born. So it doesn't die. And so he also called it, along with Nibbana, he called it the unaging, the unailing, the unborn, the undying, also the deathless. So something as uh, beyond ordinary experience as this, this un something which is unconditioned, which ordinarily we wouldn't have any idea what that means. Um, but as practitioners, we start to get little hints and clues about <coughs> what that means. Um, we see what conditioned means. We see, that we see what aging is. We see what birth is, what death is. We, uh, and so we can sort of get a sense of, of he's pointing to something that's not that. Right? But he can't say what it is other than it's really good. Right? So he calls it the wonderful, the highest happiness, other terms like this. Um, enlightenment, uh, freedom from suffering, uh, other terms along these lines. And the Buddha himself, is he is the enlightened one in, in, the, in the suttas, but he also has many, many enlightened disciples who also know what he's talking about. So they all know the deathless, and he taught the deathless. Uh, but when we use the, the verb to be, what is the deathless? As soon as we put it in those terms, the, the verb is um, suggests the notion of existence. And as we've seen, everything that's in existence it has requires our minds to overlay concepts in order to recognize it. In other words, it's dependent, um, something like, say, the notion of the economy. It's not just dependent on banks and money and businesses and people being employed, the economy depends on us perceiving it. Us, it depends on our minds. It's a mental construct, the notion of the economy or value of money or 
uh, all human conventions are conceptually grounded. And so we talk about things existing, uh, using this verb to be, is, um, and that applies most directly to, to the me, to the self, I am. Right? So I, the, the notion of I am, is right at the center of the thing that we tend to grasp at, this, this idea of the self. And it seems as though we do exist. I mean, I'm not, the Buddha doesn't say, hey, guess what, you don't exist. Right? He's not saying that at all. Um, but he's, he's pointing out that the things that we grasp at, that the mind grasps at, as this is mine. Anything that, that's mine, like my body, implies an owner who stands behind it and is the owner of it. So when we're grasping at some possession, we're also grasping at the idea of, of a me who owns this possession inherently. We, we're creating a subject-object relationship. Every time we talk about that doesn't belong to me, every time we look at something else um, or refer to another person, it's always from the perspective of me in relationship to that other thing. So language has woven throughout it this notion of existence. And when something gets destroyed, we say it doesn't exist anymore. So the it that we're referring to is the concept of the thing that actually uh, only exists when we know about it. I mean, it doesn't have an existence on its own side. So, so the deathless doesn't participate in that whole business. There's no uh, existence or non-existence for the deathless because existence is bound up with concepts with, with uh, arising and passing away, with the self and other, with, with, a dual, with a dualistic stance of the bounded self looking out at the world. So by studying how it is that existence comes to be in our direct experience, like how sounds come to be, how emotions come to be, how clinging comes to be, how suffering comes to be, how when we see this process of things coming into existence and then passing out of existence, slowly, slowly it starts to become more and more apparent to us how it is that we participate in that creation of things. And that the, the, the labeling of them is a huge part of that, recognizing what they are, deciding whether it's good or bad, deciding we like it or we don't like it. We, we embroil ourselves in there uh, in their presence, and we make them exist by the way that we interact with them, by, the, by generating this dualistic uh, self and other relationship between everything that we know about. So the deathless, as you could say, is the cessation of this whole process of generating existence. Because death really only applies to that which is born. And birth and death are participants in this whole business of existence. So if, you, if, if it's possible for an experience to step outside that whole cycle of existence, then what's, what, what's there doesn't participate in death. So therefore, you could say it's deathless. That's as close as I can come. OK, there's a couple more questions here. This is a practical meditation question. Can you explain how to do the body parts meditation? 
Do we visualize, for example, hair on the head or located on the body through sensing or use a photograph? I've never seen a kidney before except in the butcher. <laughs> See, I've never seen a kidney before except in the, at the butcher. Would this work? So this is a very pragmatic question. One of the topics of meditation is the 32 parts of the body. And of course, at the time of the Buddha, it wouldn't have been very hard to, to go to a charnel ground and actually look and see all the parts of the body being ripped apart by jackals or whatever. Um, most people at the time would have had a pretty clear idea of what's going on in a, in a coarse way. Obviously not at the genetic level, but all these 32 parts, the ones that you can sort of easily see with your eyes, uh, that would have been pretty commonplace. Harder for modern people to get uh, a lot of experiences with these parts of the body. Um, but what a lot of monks do is um, they'll get a uh, medical anatomy book and look at those pictures, right? Get a pretty good visual idea of what kidneys look like, what liver looks like, what intestines look like, and then sort of map that onto your own body. So liver's about here, the heart's about there, it's about this big, it's going right there. The liver's really kind of red, it's taking up a huge part of your... You know, the, un underneath the uh, rib cage here, the lungs are just above. The lungs go all the way up to here, and they come right up to your clavicle. Um, so, kind of getting these details down and kind of knowing what color they are and um, what their function is a little bit. This, this helps you kind of ground it in this body. Um, eventually, you start noticing that you can feel things like you can feel your small intestine emptying its contents into your large intestine. And it's kind of gross. <laughs> and it helps to, uh, to alleviate grasping at the body. Right? You just see that it's a bunch of plumbing and, and, and rods and connectors and stuff uh, making it all work. It's a, it's, it's a miracle. It's miraculous. Uh, it's fantastic. And of course, it allows us to have this experience of being a human being. And yet, it's kind of gross. Like it's, like, you know, it's full of... It's full of blood, it's full of mucus, it's full of phlegm. There's all this stuff in there that uh, is necessary for its function, but you really don't want to see it on your sandwich. You know? <laughs> Not even if it's yours, you know, much less somebody else's. Right? So um, getting a sense of this, um, uh, it's like a more realistic perspective of the body. So what, what uh, uh, some instruction I've, I've been exposed to and my practices that I've done involve, um, you know, you sit down, you close your eyes, you um, having spent some time doing two things. One is exposing yourself to the, these images and getting a sense of color, location, and function of each one of these organs and how they kind of apply to your own, this, this very body, okay, brain, you know where the brain is, you know about how big it is, what color it is, how much volume of the head it takes up. Um, Etc. All the all the different parts of the body, and you memorize the list. So we chanted it this morning, but it's not that difficult to memorize. There's 12 parts of, that are on the surface. So hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. Right? That's the stuff that you see when you look at another person. Right? It's the superficial part. If you go to town, 
You'll see hair salons, nail salons, tanning salons. <laughs> right? You'll see the five parts of the body that you can see all being kind of, have their own businesses dedicated to them. You really won't see like any kidney salons. <laughs> Beautify your kidneys, you know. Um, so uh, then the next, the next level down is what's just underneath the skin and what's kind of activating our, our sense of being an animate uh, uh, animal. So there's, there's uh, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow. And then we start getting into the internal organs. Right? So then there's, uh, uh, when does it start? Kidneys, heart, uh, liver, uh, mesentery, which is this kind of covering film or m membrane over the intestines, which is quite amazing. Uh, and it's both its function and its appearance. And um, look at it and with some couple of hours before or after a meal rather than really close to a meal. Um, and it's not that great. Um, then uh, so spleen, um, lungs, large intestines, small, intest small intestines and stomach together are kind of considered the entrails. Um, uh, undigested food, excrement, and then we go through all the fluids. So uh, phlegm, bile, uh, blood, pus, blood, pus, blood, sweat, tears, fat, grease, <laughs> um, spittle, mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. And then last but not least, or maybe least, who knows, but they kind of stuck it in there at the very end, brain. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you memorize this list, and there's, you know, it's not that, not that hard to do. And then one thing you can just do is just sort of sit down and go through the list. Uh, and if you visualize each one of these things, just sort of imagine like this body, you can feel your body when you're sitting here. And so you can kind of map the sensations of the body onto well, what approximately is there. So you can feel the skin, you can get a sense of where the bones are, you can, you can sort of imagine your bone marrow. It's hard to really get a, a clear visual sense of what bone marrow is, how it applies to your body, but just you know, kind of do your best. And um, as you go through it, it's not unusual for you to notice that some of these elements of the body are much easier for you to visualize and, and sort of appreciate to sort of know than others. Like you might have, you might see that the liver is just really clear to you, and mesentery or membrane is kind of vague. Uh, large intestines really clear. Small intestines not so clear. Right? Phlegm kind of clear, oil the joints, eh, I don't know what that is really. I, it could be like that, that's just totally normal. You just do your best. And then you go, you go through it, and you go through it again, and you go through it again. And sooner or later you'll find some, some of the items that are pretty easy for you to visualize. A lot of people find the skeleton or bones not that difficult. Even though you don't really see them on the surface, you get a sense, you, know, you can sort of feel your jaw and your skull and the bones of your hands. And you can relate them to actual images of skeletons and maybe other kinds of bones that you might have seen. And so if you find one or more of these objects that's relatively easy for you to comfortably visualize, you can spend a lot of time on just that one object. So uh, uh, whenever you're c contemplating the body in this way, um, you know, visualizing it, relating it to this very body, the one that you're currently encountering, um, you're 
you're actually polishing up several different useful Dhamma principles. Uh, one is dispassion towards the body, uh, uh, making it easier for the body to be seen as simply a body, just simply part of nature and not possessed by anybody. To be subject to uh, death, so the, the death contemplations are relevant uh, because bones, you know, bones are what's left of the skeleton. That's what's left when the rest of the body kind of rots away. So all these things kind of bear on each other. You see the vulnerability of the body, it's, it's organic nature, it's unpossessed nature. You see that your bones are just like anybody else's bones. There's nothing particularly special about your bones, but other than they're these ones here, rather than those ones over there. But it's a kind of an arbitrary distinction that gets made by the mind. So because you're depersonalizing it, it gets easier and easier to delocate the notion of the self with the body. And uh, not taking the body itself is, a, is a, a powerful antidote to fear of death, uh, fear of aging, fear of, of sickness. Uh, because if it's just happening to a body, well, that's just nature. If it's happening to my body, that's a tragedy. Right? So it's a matter of like getting some perspective and getting getting your able uh, developing this ability to see things from a from a different perspective. When you find a skillful perspective to stand from and and consider something, um, that one's going to make you feel calm, at ease, uh, content, and that's a wholesome perspective to be at. It's you could say it's very functional to look at the body <coughs> as simply a manifestation of nature rather than something that you need to personally be worried about beyond your caretaker role of the body. So we're all caretakers of these bodies. Uh, I often have compared it to a rental car, mm -hmm. right? So it's, and here it is, you know, uh, you wake up one day, you're on the road, you're inside a car and it says hurts, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> Doesn't your body do that to you? It hurts? <laughs> so, so the rental car uh, will eventually be due back at the rental dealer. And so and when the rental dealer wants it back, you don't have any choice in the matter because it doesn't belong to you. If it belonged to you, then yeah, you could keep it for as long as you wanted to. And in that case, maybe it made sense to like uh, decorate it and write your name all over it and you know take it really, really personally. But seeing that it's just a rental car, well, okay, you keep you put gas in it and you keep the tires aired up, but you know, it's not really yours. So you, your your attitude towards it is one of much more seeing it as just a vehicle for getting you from point A to point B, doing functional necessary things. Uh, if you want to get enlightened, if you want to practice the Dhamma, you need one of these. So, you know, here you go. If you've been issued one, make good use of it. Uh, don't get attached. And that'll be a, a proper relationship to the body. So I hope that helps a little bit with the body contemplation. Uh, knowing knowing wh what the body contemplation is inclining the mind towards is helpful so that you, you don't necessarily get too far off base. Every one of the meditation techniques is meant to help you develop right view, you could say, and also um, right mindfulness and right concentration and right effort. So in order to do the, the body contemplation, 
um, it takes a fair amount of mental determination. You have to memorize this list. You have to kind of go through it. You have to be cyclical about it so you get through. You don't miss anything. You, see, you visualize all the objects. It takes mental effort to visualize things. And so that application of effort helps to train yourself to put effort into meditation. Right? Uh, the topic itself is provocative of dispassion, of, of right view, seeing things the way they really are, like the body is not really self. It's fraught with peril. Uh, if you cling to it, it will cause suffering. So you're seeing, you can implicitly see the three characteristics. It builds concentration. And of course, in order to do this, it requires a certain amount of mindfulness. So mindfulness, concentration, all these things are being built. Your job is not to try to hate the body or to get uh, to try to get rid of it or to despise it or to, or to evoke uh, aversive uh, mental states in regards to the body. The body is not a problem. It's not something to dislike. There's a sutta in which um, the Buddha gives some contemplations on the body, and then he goes on retreat. And when he comes back, there's a bunch of monks are missing. And it turns out they all committed suicide because they became so disgusted with the body. And so the Buddha goes, oh. <laughs> uh, that's not what I meant, you guys. <laughs> so um, he's really clear. It's just for um, this process of developing right view and dispassion towards that which is worthy of dispassion. Here's another one. Let's see. Can you tell us how you keep pedaling your bike outside of formal meditation during the busy non-winter time at the monastery? Yeah, this is a, this kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier that the uh, the monastery is a lot like a a variation on the theme of being a householder in some ways. Um, when I was a householder, you know, I had a lot of responsibilities. Uh, I had a car, I had a, car, I had a house or a place that I was living. I had clothing I have to look after. I have to provide my food. I have to pay my taxes, pay bills, uh, look after my clients, uh, look after my health. I have to do all these things, just like you all do. Right? Um, and every chance I got, I would set all that stuff aside and go on retreat. Spend, you know, two weeks or three a month or something, um, just walking and sitting and walking and sitting and listening to Dhamma talks. And uh, during those retreat times, I'd make good progress, and then I'd have this be confronted again with my lay life and how to how to keep uh, keep going in lay life. The monasteries like that too, in that uh, there's a period of retreat that we get every year, the winter retreat. There are uh, weekends, you could say, where we are kind of really strongly encouraged to spend more time meditating. So the Oposita observance, the lunar observances at the monastery, we, we set down work activities and it create, frees up time to spend more time uh, practicing formally. But during the, uh, during the work year, it's, the mind gets engaged in all kinds of work projects and uh, visitors are coming and there's events that are coming up that we have to plan for. And, um, uh, Little various crises emerge. You know, the the third, the, the the toilet on the second floor is not working, and so we have to kind of leap to into action and do something about it. Um, so this sort of stuff is just the, the normal uh, busyness of the monastery. Not it, it's 
maybe less intense than lay life in terms of the volume and the quality of the stuff. Uh, it's less complicated because there's things that we don't have to worry about because we're monks. We don't have to worry about taxes, unless you're Venerable Amar Siri, in which case you do have to worry about taxes. Uh, but we don't have to worry about personal income taxes or things like this. Um, but for the most part, we're, you know, our concerns about our own personal stuff is relatively small, which is our kuti, our robes, our bowl, uh, a few minor possessions. That's pretty much it. So uh, it can be, it, it does actually pare things down quite a bit. So it's, but it's a matter of degree rather than kind. Right? So in this world of busyness during the, during the, the what we call the work year at the monastery, uh, I pretty much do the same thing I did when I was a layperson. Right? Um, I try to meditate every day. Right? Uh, the more, the better. The great thing about the monastery is there's two hours built into the schedule. Morning puja, evening puja. So uh, if you come to the monastery, you can most days you can pretty much count on there being those two pujas. Not all the time. Sometimes we take a week off or you know, there's a day that we don't do it. But on those days, um, it's possible to spend a lot more time in your kuti alone practicing. So that's one of the great things about, well, one of the benefits, you could say, great things may be overstating it, benefit of monasticism in this particular form is you have a kuti in the forest, a place you can go where basically no one's going to bother you, right? There's no telephone there, there's no internet, uh, you've got a little bit of electricity so you can turn on a light and, you know, read suttas or something, but it's really simple. And uh, unless there's an emergency, no one's going to come out to your kuti and knock on your door. So when you're in there, you're like in this world apart, and it's very supportive for contemplation and for specific meditation development. And so you get a couple hours every day, maybe a couple, maybe a lot. Maybe, maybe you'll get some days where you get 10, where you can actually meditate without disturbance. So when I was uh, earlier on in my monk career, I spent probably more time in my kuti than I do now. It seems now I spend a fair bit of time after the, after the work period, after the meal, kind of tying up loose ends so I can go back to my kuti. And then maybe I'll go back to my kuti, maybe I won't, before the evening puja comes up. So it's, uh, uh, it's busy enough that sometimes I find myself like answering emails or putting together stuff for tomorrow uh, uh, several times a week. But even so, you know, there's, there are these set-aside times in my schedule just for meditation and uh, just try to make use of those when I'm when things are busy um, or when I'm engaged in stuff whenever I'm switching from one thing to another I try to remember uh, what I'm doing you know, notice the body remember why I'm here remember what it is that we're that Buddha taught what and why I'm wearing this robe uh, what's the uh, what's the point of my of my life so it's um, in that setting with all these other monks around and with the literature that we have on our bookshelf and the kinds of things that we do, it's not that hard to keep it close to the front of, of the mind, of what's going on here, what we're here for. It was definitely harder in lay life. Um, but like one habit I got into in lay life is whenever I was traveling and I was in a hotel 
and I got to my hotel room, the first thing I'd do is I'd throw a sheet over the television. There's a big television there in your room. I'd throw a sheet over that thing, you know, cut it off, uh, unplug that telephone. Right? So, like, set my set the room up so that it, it's more defended against all the possible intrusions and and um, seductive distractions that are kind of built into a uh, into a space. And so, you, if you can create a space like that for yourself in your own life. Um, sort of a kuti-like space where it's, there's nothing in there but a couple of holy books and a, a Buddha Rupa, uh, you know, uh, a few things like that. A nice place to meditate, a nice place to study suttas. Um, that's great. Even if it's just a little corner, you know, like anything you can create that gives you that feeling of like, there's a place for me to go and, and hide out for a little while and remember why I'm here. And of course, anything you can do to declutter your environment, to put up reminders that, that help you uh, keep in mind what it is that we're here for. When you really get the, the taste of the Dhamma in your, in your mind, uh, you, it's hard to conceive of a human life really having any value other than for the pursuit of the Dhamma. Like it, it becomes like the most important thing, the thing that makes human life worth living or justifies it. All this suffering, all this pointless activity, but if there's this dhamma that you can practice, um, then okay, it's worth it. Right? It's like the human life is really worth it. It's actually quite precious because of this opportunity to practice. So uh, anything you can do to kind of remind yourself of that—that's again the value of the monastery. That's why people come to the monastery and spend time there. Uh, they get to kind of kind of join in with the monks' cycle, their routine. You know, our work period, our getting up at 4.30 in the morning and going to puja, uh, our, our not eating after midday, uh, the big open spaces of time where you can just walk and sit. You can sit in the sala. You can uh, go out into the library and read dhamma or abhidhamma or suttas, whatever you want. You can study. You can go for a walk in the woods and just look at the trees and let your mind settle down. Right? There's, there's, it's a really, really good uh, resource, which I encourage people to consider. Uh, but yeah, even, even for monks, it's not, it's, like, it's not like some royal road. You still have to discipline yourself. You still have to make determinations. You still have to keep bringing yourself back over and over again, because even at the monastery, there's, there's all these great projects in the workshop, and there's these, these unfinished uh, uh, half-started things that we're supposed to do on the website, and you could really get sucked into all kinds of projects there if you're not careful. So one has to put boundaries on things. You have to say, okay, I'm going to do this for uh, 90 minutes, and then I'm going to go back to my kuti. If you if you want to look back at your day and then ask yourself, how much time did I? spend cultivating and how much time did it spend lost, you want that ratio to get better and better over time, ideally. Uh, and it waxes and wanes. Sometimes you're really inspired and you're really meditating a lot, and sometimes you're just barely hanging on because there's all these events happening and you don't, you don't care about meditation and you hate the monastery and you wish, you know, <laughs> you could be somewhere else. So this is just the human mind. It's just doing what it does. Right? And we try to recognize that without uh, taking it too seriously. 
So let's see. Yeah? Just about monastic life. How do do the monks stay in touch with families? Uh, well, monks stay in touch with families through a variety of means, both, both modern and ancient. So I stay in touch with my father and my siblings a little bit um, through email from time to time. I give my father a call once a month or so. Um, typically once a year or so I'll go and visit for a few days. Um, my father's been here. My sister once took me on a trip with my father to, uh, to Israel. So it's like the families, of course all families are unique, right? So. Um, some families are really, really close, and they really, really miss their son, and so they come to the monastery. They're there fairly frequently, and they, they, their son goes back home. And uh, especially when they're they're young and they're new to the robes, that that tends to be the case. The longer they stay in the monastery, then the more sort of like that's like you're part of a separate family, right? So you still engage from time to time, but it becomes less intimate over time, which is quite normal. Um, so there's, there are, of course, boundaries on what monks can do when they're visiting their families, and very, very strict boundaries. And um, the usual experience seems to be that once you get used to monastic life, and this is certainly my experience, of like only eating one meal a day, wearing the same clothes a day after day after day, <laughs> um, uh, you know, following a fairly rigid routine, um, like you sort of settle into that and that becomes normal for you. And then when you visit your family, it's like it's kind of stressful because they do all this weird stuff. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? And so you're, 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 you enjoy their company, you like the fact that you're able to visit, uh, you have some interesting conversations, but you know, some of it's kind of like, you know, they're like watching sports and stuff and it's like, ah. <laughs> so. So fortunately, they give you a, a room where you can go hide when, when weird stuff is happening. And then when you come back to the monastery, you're like, oh, it's home sweet home. I'm so glad to be back. You know, uh, it was, I mean, it's nice to visit, but it's, it's, just, it's really great to be back. You know? um, where, back where I belong, where I feel most at home, right? In the woods by myself. So uh, that's just this kind of metamorphosis that, uh, that you go through when you're, when you stay in that situation long enough since most monks end up um, kind of enjoying their, they, they kind of delight in solitude as the, as the uh, reflection encourages us to do. Um, because that's where our, our most valuable uh, experiences have occurred. Some of our most valuable experiences are just all by ourselves, just watching our mind. And then we see something really valuable hardly ever happens when you're hanging around with your family trying not to look at the television. <laughs> I mean, those are nice, but it's not, it's not life-changing. So. Okay, well, um, we'll leave that for the Dhamma talk, such as it is. And Sadhu Karanta Damasi Sadhu Sadhu Sadhu